Luke 8 is where we're going to be. Uh, we've been in Luke's gospel. We're pressing on at rapid pace. Luke 8, verse 26 is uh, where we're starting. We're going to read all the way down to verse 39. This is one of the most moving stories in all the Bible. Uh, it's amazing. So I hope you're ready to meditate on it with me. But Matthew, Mark, Luke, in the New Testament there, chapter 8, verse 26. Let me read this text, pray, and then... Uh, We will dive in. This is God's word. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles. But he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him and they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now, a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. And the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Verse 34, when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Let's pray. God, let there be no doubt. We put ourselves under your word. Who is man, Lord, that we would try to exalt ourselves? Over what you have spoken. Your word created us. Your word sustains us. Your word has authority and power beyond what we can even conceive. To create and redeem. To judge and destroy. God you have all authority. We are so honored. So humbled. So amazed. That you use your word to speak to us. To speak into our hearts. To heal the broken places. 
shine a light in the dark. We just repeat now what we sang just a moment ago. Here's my heart, Lord. Speak what is true. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, hold on one second. So we carry with, uh, we carry on with Luke now in in this gospel, and he's taking us uh, into yet another scene that describes, portrays, depicts Jesus as uh, having redemptive authority and power over all things. Um, if you were here last week, you recall that we um, we saw Jesus still the raging waters of the sea right, with just a word. Hush, be still. The waves and the wind stopped. Well, from that point, it seems, according to Luke's gospel, they then set sail for um, a Gentile region. What we read here is east of Galilee, namely the country of the Gerasenes or the Gadarenes, or there's some difficulty with the manuscripts there, but the Gerasenes. And it's here that Jesus is now going to still a storm that's raging not outside of a man, but within him. This is no longer going to be stilling a storm at sea. This is going to be stilling uh, a storm in the soul. And I wonder if you have any of those. If you bring any of those this morning. Storms of the soul. Everything might look good on the outside. Inside something is raging heavy. Uh, This man presents us with an extreme case. We read in verse 27 there, when Jesus had stepped out on the land, there met him a man from the city who had demons, who had demons. There is uh, perhaps no more tragic a figure presented to us in all the Gospels than the languishing shell of a man that we meet here in this narrative. I mean, you can hardly read about this guy's life without tears uh, forming in the corner of your eyes. You think about his story. There's a lot that we don't know. For example, we don't know how he got this way. We don't know how long this has been going on, though it does say for a while. We don't know. Did he have a family? A mom, a dad, a wife, maybe even kids. We don't know much about his story. But one thing we do know for sure among all the uncertainties, one thing is certain. Demons have reduced his life to ruins. That is tragically clear on the surface of these verses. So, we are um, going to spend probably three weeks in this story. Um, not positive yet, but I, th- I think that's what it will be. So I'm going to leave some wonderful things out. And you're going to be like, he didn't hit that. He didn't hit that. He didn't hit that. We'll get back to it. I promise. Um, 
But the title of this first message, I should say, I'm sorry I didn't have the handout for you this morning. Doing this and all the other stuff going on, I uh, I got tired. I was like, I, I'm not doing a handout right now. So Okay, good. So you know, the manuscripts are always available online. This. You don't have to have the little handout with just little blips. You could have this, okay, if you want it. <laughs> it's available online. Um, but for now, I'm going to need you to listen close. The um, title of this message is going to be Jesus and Demons, part one, subtitle, The Messianic Contradiction. All that Satan and the devil are attempting to do, we will see Jesus come and contradict it. That's what we're going to look at this morning. I think I read this text just a few weeks ago when we looked at the parable of the soils, but let me read it again. First John 3, 8. I wonder if you know this. The reason, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Why did he come? To do this. That's what I'm calling the Messianic, the Messiah's contradiction. To come against Everything that the devil and his little entourage are trying to do. Now, let me just say, I I don't think I've actually known. I've known people who have seen people. I know people who know people who have been, you could say, possessed, inhabited by demons. I don't think I've personally known uh, anyone that has actually had a demon take up residence within them and uh, uh, take over the control center of their life, as it were, at least from time to time. Like it seems is happening here. Um, I don't think that I have seen that. Maybe you have, but, but I think certainly we all need to admit that to varying degrees, every one of us, has been influenced by the demonic. And you might initially be confused when I say that. You're influenced by the demonic. I don't foam at the mouth. I don't have my head spinning in things. I don't do Ouija boards. We're talking about influenced by the demonic. Well, I'm, I'm trying to draw a distinction between demonic possession, you might say, and influence. Yes, this is an extreme case with this man, but no, he's not alone in being influenced by the devil and by demons. We all are brothers and sisters, even now being influenced in one way or another by the forces of evil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities and powers of darkness, Paul would say. So we're naive if we think otherwise. We we might not be possessed, but certainly we are influenced. And this text, while an extreme case, is going to help us identify what Satan and demons are up to, not just in his life, but then by extension in our own. And then we're going to watch how, how Christ comes, the Messiah comes, to destroy, to contradict it. So two major headings for this morning. Again, no handout, pay attention. (laughs) The uh, demonic influence, that's where we're going to be first. And then followed by the messianic contradiction. So uh, let me begin with the demonic influence here. When we look closely at our text and what these demons are doing to this man, I I think various layers 
uh, emerge uh, regarding kind of their influence in his life. We start to see various strands of influence, various ways that the demons have influenced this man. And I'm going to give you four of them. And they're going to kind of build off of one another. Let me give them to you up front so I don't lose you in my train of thought. First, we're going to see this, this influence of pollution. Then exposure. Then isolation. And finally, where the demonic strategy and goal ends, death. Let's begin with pollution. Here is uh, where we note that the man himself was actually made unclean. By the demons. Okay. If you make note of uh, Luke's remark there. Verse 29. He, he says that an unclean spirit. Is inside of him. Now for the Jewish world. You know that in the ceremonial law. Cleanness and uncleanness was a big deal. Right. It was symbolic in many ways of not just good hygiene or bad hygiene, but your standing with God, holiness or sinfulness, guilt or, or I should say innocence or guilt. So to be unclean brings with it so much more than just a little bit of dirt on your body. It means before God, you are guilty before God, you are filthy. And so. The first layer of demonic influence I wanted to bring out is this idea of pollution, that demons actually aim to pollute, to corrupt, to lead you and I away from God into sin. That's why Satan is called the tempter in Matthew 4, 3, 1 Thessalonians 3, 5. He exists to call you, to tempt you, to lure you away from what is holy, what is pure, into what is polluted, what is contaminated, what is sinful, what is wrong. And I I wonder, now that we've kind of broadened their influence out a little bit, I wonder how many of you would say, yeah, okay, I see demonic influence in my life. I feel the temptation. I feel the call towards the siren call. You could say towards sin. It's coming at me through the TV. It's coming at me through coworkers and what they value and what they preach. Because they preach, brothers and sisters. It's coming at me through the other moms at the gym. Here's where joy is found. Here's where the party's at. Did God really say... I wonder how that's going on in yours and my life even now. The scary thing is, is that this is, ju- this is just kind of where the demonic influence begins. It just begins with pollution, with temptation into filth. It gets a lot worse from here. So first pollution, now second, we see exposure. Exposure. Uh, the demonic goal is not just to pollute us, but to expose us. In other words, not just to get us guilty, but to shame us. To get us naked and ashamed. Right? So this is what we see here with this demonized man there in verse 27, where we read this. For a long time, he had worn no clothes 
His details matter, just so you know. He had worn no clothes and not lived in a house. In other words, he's not only unclean, he's naked, uncovered, unprotected, exposed, shamed. This guy, he could have been a father, could have been a husband, probably. And there he goes, just exposed, naked, embarrassing, just the whole, the whole city, the whole town aware of what a fool he is. Just exposed utterly. And it occurred to me that Satan aims to tempt you into guilt so that he can expose it to your shame. He's not done with guilt. He's going to layer on a little bit more. The devil quickly goes from enticing you to accusing you. From whispering softly to you to screaming at you. He's not just a subtle serpent. He's a devouring lion. Right? He actually lures you into guilt so that he can shame you to pieces. I wonder where the accuser, as he's called, has been after you lately. I wonder if there are any open wounds that the devil's just driving his finger into. He has a lot of evidence on us. There's a lot of pollution in this man. He has plenty to work with in the courtroom of God. But as we'll see, Revelation 12 talks about the accuser of the brethren has been cast down. Because of what Jesus has done. Tons of evidence against me. Jesus will clear my name anyways. But he exists. His aim is to accuse, to condemn. If you're sitting here under the weight of condemnation, I can say with the authority of the Bible, demons are near. The Holy Spirit convicts and leads to life. The devil will try to hijack that conviction and lead it into condemnation. You hear me on that? And lead you to go, there's no hope for me. And this gets to where we move next. So first, pollution. Second, layer. And it's almost like we're going down. We're not going up <laughs> here. We're going down. Next layer, exposure. Now we see isolation. Isolation. In your guilt and in your shame, you will want nothing else but to get away. This is the next step in the process. Just get me away from other people. Isolation. Isolation. We see that here with this man in verse 29. He was kept under guard, we read, and and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon. Where? Into the desert, into the, what could be translated, wilderness or the uninhabited regions. In other words, the places where no one else is. That's where demons want to get you. That's where they drive you. This man couldn't be kept. 
in, uh, in, in the community of other people. They tried. They, they, they chained him, shackled him. Stay here in civilization. But the demonic influence is saying, let's get you out to the desert. Let's get you isolated where you can be alone. And that's the trajectory that I just kind of jump into some pretty somber stuff. All your faces are like, I know, it's hard, it's rough, but uh, hopefully we end on a high note. <laughs> Stick with me. Um, this is the trajectory that the devil wants you on. Take the fruit. Expose you in naked shame. Isolate you from one another in community. The woman made me do it. Isolate you from God, running and hiding. Alone. Now I wonder if anyone in this room feels too dirty to be here. I almost like you didn't want to come. You don't like hanging out with the saints because you're not a saint. <laughs> Neither are we, except in Christ. You feel like your life is a mess. The last thing you want to do is come in and shake hands and sit with the people of God and say prayers and sing songs. You want to get away. You want to get alone. You don't belong here. That's the devil talking. It even occurred to me that, that sometimes I might be preaching to people that aren't here. Meaning people that listen online via the MP3 that we post there later. And I just thought, if for some reason that is you there in the MP3 on the other side of the computer. that You didn't show up this morning because of what you did last night. You don't belong with the children of God, so you slept in. I just, I just beg you, don't play in to the devil's hand. Because he um, divides to conquer. He isolates to destroy. It's one of the reasons why we so push the gathering of the saints. I talk about the 2020 vision from Acts 2020, uh, meeting in small groups and large gatherings, getting into one another's life, getting into community, because the trajectory of the devil's work, the demonic influence in your life is going to move you to, I don't need to be there. I don't want to be there. I don't, I don't feel like having somebody ask me how I'm doing. Then I got to confess sin or something. I don't, I don't want to do that. It's going to move you towards isolation and he's going to do that so that he can kill you. This is not a game. This is not a game. The son of man came for this reason. To take down the, 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 the most uh, significant foe you have. It's not Trump. It's not your boss, your wife. It's the devil. First, pollution, exposure. Isolation, death. The demons will not be satisfied until you are dead. This brother is not living in a house. He spends a lot of time alone in the desert. But we're told even more about his lifestyle. There in verse 27. He's living, he prefers to live among the tombs. 
Does that creep you out? Creeps me out. Halloween, we think it's fun and games. This is, this is another thing entirely. You know demons are having their way with you when dead people start to feel like good company. When you feel at home among the dead. The uh, kids in their classes last week talked about Cain and Abel. Okay, so they're back there talking about going through Genesis, talking about Cain and Abel. And so uh, I encourage you guys to do this a few weeks ago. I'm doing it. I, I, I love it. Uh, do an evening service with your kids, right? Uh, around the table, talking about these things that they're learning. And I'm sitting there talking about Cain and Abel, and the essence of it is this. This is where sin goes. You jump into that stream, just taking a bite of the fruit that God said, uh-uh, there ain't life there. This is where the current takes you. It takes you to death. It takes you to brother standing over dead body of brother. Trying to cover up his blood in the dirt. Pollution, exposure, isolation, and death. That's where this thing is going. The demons tell Jesus their name in verse 30. Why he asked their name, I have no idea. I guess he's just, he's a respectful Messiah. He wants to know the name of the demon as he's kicking him out. But the name is Legion. Um, some of you may know. Many of you might not, that's right. A, a legion is, was essentially the largest unit in the Roman army. Largest military unit in the Roman army. Sometimes about 6,000 soldiers. So by uh, giving this name uh, to these demons here, we are uh, allowed to draw out at least two implications. One, there are many of them in this poor man. But two, these demons are militant. They are like soldiers thirsty for blood as they seek to destroy souls. That's why Mark, um, gospel writer, in his account of this story provides us with another devastating detail about what this man was doing. This is Mark 5, 5. It says this, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. The demons inside of him turning him against himself. Stones like, Ripping through his flesh. What should be painful starts to seem pleasurable or like a good idea. What should be so horribly wrong starts to feel right. We are watching a human being come undone at the seams. We are watching the image of God in this man being reduced To nothing. The human is becoming akin with the demon. 
And um, as I thought about this, I think this actually really gets to the underlying goal in the demonic, in all of this. Demons, Satan, hate you and me. But not as much as they hate God. So because they hate God and we are made in the image of God, like little mirrors reflecting his majesty, Satan will do everything he can to shatter that mirror into a thousand pieces. Just get the the, the, the image of God out of my face. So this man just reduced to nothing. The image of God marred beyond recognition. That's where we're going. This is one of the reasons, side note, why I don't think that hell is the place that God is absent. That would be the devil's heaven, do you understand? A place where God is not is the place that the devil can only dream of. No, it's a lot more somber, sober than that. Hell is the place where God is present, absolutely, just not in grace and mercy, but in judgment and wrath and fire. On a serious, can it get any more serious? (laughs) On a serious note, I wonder if you've ever thought of taking your own life. I wonder if you thought the world would be better with me dead. I'm sick of the guilt. I'm sick of the shame. I'm sick of feeling so alone. Nobody knows me. Nobody loves me. I'm sick of the pain in this place. Let's just take the blade. Let's do this. What do you do? We've just looked at four ways that demons are at work influencing us. Perhaps we even see some of it now. Some ways that, wow, oh, I'm not doing Ouija boards, but there's definitely something going on in my heart. What do you do? Where's the suicide hotline you can call? Where's help come from when you're with this man among the tombs? Now, this is where we find the strength to take one more breath and we keep reading. And with Jesus, we start to ascend out of this hole. The messianic contradiction. No person, no chain, no shackle could hold against the rage of these demons. Nothing was working. But then Jesus, the Son of the Most High God, verse 28, appears, and these spiritual terrorists, did you notice, are reduced to mere beggars. They just fall at Jesus' feet. Chains, shackles, worldly philosophies, not going to happen. 
Jesus shows up. Freedom's on its way. Now we get to watch as Jesus contradicts everything that these demons were after in this man's life. And he does this sort of thing for us as well. First, contradiction. Contradicting pollution. He washes. He washes. Jesus commands uh, there in verse 29, the unclean spirit to come out of the man. Let's get the unclean stuff out of your life. Now, think of this with me. I didn't have much time to do this contextually, but but hear this. Jesus comes to an unclean man with an unclean spirit who lives among unclean tombs. According to Jewish ceremonial law, Numbers 1911, you don't go among the dead. It's unclean. Surrounded by people with an unclean occupation, namely herding pigs, unclean animal, in the midst of an unclean Gentile region, Jesus just walks in, says a word, washes this guy up. I just thought, what an amazing picture. Oftentimes we think that our, our sin, our pollution, uh, will, will kind of uh, deter Jesus from coming to us. Like we're just too filthy. This text says your pollution, your sin, your guilt is the reason Jesus comes near to you. I mean, we've looked at this with the Pharisees. The guys that say they're righteous, that think they have nothing, are the guys he passes by. It's the sick ones. It's the unclean. that he says, I'm coming for you. Let's do dinner. It's amazing. It's amazing. Contradicting pollution, he washes. Contradicting exposure, no. Jesus covers. We read in verses 34 and 35. That when the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. They were amazed. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, what? Clothed. Told you that detail mattered. From naked and exposed to clothed and covered. It's a picture, I think, of what Jesus does with a human being who's been stuck in sin, stuck in in, in shame. He covers. He doesn't drive his fingers in to the wounds. He clothes you. He covers your shame. He protects you. He comes over you. Read the Psalms. It's amazing. All the descriptions given to God that they kind of picture this idea of him coming over us. The refuge, the strong tower and all these things. I just run into you and you cover. It's really a picture of what God does back in the garden right after their sin. After Adam and Eve's sin when he covers their naked shame with the skins of an animal. It's what Jesus is doing for this Brother, here. He washes, he covers, contradicting isolation. He welcomes. He welcomes. The man from whom demons had gone is not only now clean and clothed, he is also, verse 35, sitting at the feet of Jesus. He's been restored to God. <laughs> you understand? Like when the demons were in him, this man was at Jesus' feet, sure, but screaming at him. 
Now that the demons are gone and Jesus is at work in his life, this brother is sitting at Jesus' feet, but now it's in fellowship. Now he's experiencing the welcome of God, the community that he's been called into by Christ. And there is even more to this in verse 39. We'll look at this more probably next week. But one of the things that Jesus says there in this little detail, he tells this brother to do what? To return to your home. And I just thought, wow. Go back home. What an amazing thing to tell a man who who knows how long has been living, making his home among the tombs. Not just restored to God, Jesus restores this brother from isolation, from human beings, back to his own home. Back to people. I just imagine, I mean, again, I'm, I'm just throwing things out there, but I just imagine this brother walking home like, what in the world am I going to find when I get there? Knocking on the door. And then he just it opens up and he hears this little voice. Daddy. You know, could you just imagine? This little girl that he. I'll just imagine myself, I guess. My girls. Do you imagine? Satan gets a hold of a man and he's just lost. And this is a picture of what Jesus does. Just restores us to community. He brings us back. Not just to God, but to one another. This is what the church is. You realize that? The church, you and I, we are a reconciled community. We've been reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. No longer, no longer are we standing over the dead body of our brother. Now we are standing with one another in worship of our great God. Who saves, who redeems. Contradicting isolation, he welcomes Finally, contradicting death, Jesus brings back to life. We read that this man is not only now clean and clothed and at Jesus' feet and hanging out in his home, he's also, verse 35, in his right mind. In the language of verse 36, he had been healed. But the Greek under that is sozo. More connotations to it. He'd been saved. He'd been saved. This brother, Jesus, saved him. He'd been brought back from the tombs, brought back to life. He's now in his right mind. And the image of God that was Shattering, fracturing day by day as he drove more rocks through his flesh. Is being renewed in Christ. Devil screaming. God's people are singing. It's amazing. Now, of course we know what Jesus will have to do to fully accomplish this for us. Do we not? If you've been with me long, you know we're going here. You got to go here with me to save my life from the demonic realm. Jesus will let the demons rush him. Get that ravage him, mar him beyond recognition on the cross. 
He lets the demons have their way with him. And they carry this whole four-layer thing through to the end, do they not? He's polluted, treated like the unclean thing. All my guilt put onto him. All my sin on his back. He's exposed, stripped naked for all to mock, all to shame, all to laugh and jeer, scoff at. He's isolated. I mean, humanity is against him, not just his enemies, but the disciples flee. But beyond that, God is at that moment against him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am alone, isolated like no man has been isolated. And of course, we know that soon after they will lower his dead body into the grave, into the tomb. We're studying Hebrews in our home group, and there's this amazing verse, Hebrews 2.9. It says, he tasted death for us. He tastes death for us. He takes on the demonic onslaught for us, so that when he rises from the dead three days later, Colossians would tell us he's disarmed the demons and the realm of darkness, and now he can lead a people out into life. Not just momentarily, but eternally. It's amazing. It's amazing. I'm going to leave you with one final reflection here. I've been going through the book of Revelation in my devotions, which is a dangerous endeavor. (laughs) Not always edifying, many times confusing. But, I wanted to bring something out for you here. Through, throughout the book, there are these intriguing contrasts drawn between the way God does things, his, how his economy works, and how Satan does things, how Satan's economy works. And as I came this last week to Revelation 17, 18, 19, another contrast came out that I was like, i got to share this. It just fits in so perfectly. <laughs> because here's what we see. The devil uh, has this, this, this symbolic thing called the beast on his team, right? But God has uh, the lamb. There's a beast over here on, on, on Satan's team. There's a lamb over here on, on God's team. And both have this kind of symbolic woman, this people that are following them, the beast the lamb. And, and it's symbolically it's described as their woman. For the beast, you guessed it, it's his prostitute, his harlot. For the lamb, it's his bride. Now here's where I'm going with this. I want you to hear how Satan treats his own. But he doesn't love you. No matter what he promises, no matter what he says, this is how the devil treats his own. Revelation 17, 16 says this, the beast will hate the prostitute. You see, I thought that was his, his lady. It is. The beast will hate the prostitute. It will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh like a beast. And burn her up with fire. That's how demons treat their people. 
They're ladies, so to speak. Satan doesn't love you. When you forsake God for the fleeting pleasure of sin, you don't become the devil's bride. You become his whore. If I could be so bold. You become his prostitute. That's the picture. And so it might feel good for a moment, but in the morning you wake up feeling used, feeling like trash. Because that's what sin will do. That's the goal in all of this. And, you know, with the news of Hugh Hefner's passing, I I couldn't help but think of him here as an example of this sort of thing. I wanted to read you this from uh, John Bloom of Desiring God as he reflects on his death. Hugh Hefner, the founder of Playboy Enterprises and its chief ideological incarnation, died on Thursday at age 91 at the Playboy Mansion, immersed in the fantasy he created. He will be buried next to Marilyn Monroe, Playboy's inaugural centerfold. Hefner and many others have become very rich by objectifying women and turning them into virtual prostitutes. Mere bodily images to be used by millions of men who care nothing about them, who ravage them in their imaginations for selfish pleasures and then toss them in the trash. It is tragically appropriate that Hugh Hefner will be buried next to Marilyn Monroe. Hear this. Monroe was not merely the inaugural centerfold of Playboy magazine. She became and remains the poster girl of 20th century American sexual objectification. Nearly 60 years after her suicidal death, She remains a sexual icon in most people's minds, not a broken soul who knew the despairing loneliness of being a sensual image desired by millions, yet a person truly loved by very few. Hefner encouraged millions and millions of men and women to view people in the very way that destroyed Marilyn Monroe. This is where the demonic falls out. This is where the devil's trail leads. The promise of fame, luxury, affluence lures these women in or us in. But then somewhere along the way, it turns no longer fun anymore. What's the beast doing to me? I thought I was his lady. One of Hefner's many girlfriends actually put it this way. Everyone thinks that the infamous metal gate that surrounds the mansion was meant to keep people out. But I grew to feel it was meant to lock me in. Oh, come on in. Come on in. You spend all your energy trying to get there. You get there only to find I can't get out. I'm a slave. This is where the demonic goes. This is what happens when we follow that siren call to the cliffs rocks doesn't go well but all of this all of this is contrasted chapter 17 and 18 in the book of revelation contrasted with the way the lamb treats his bride beasts and the prostitute the lamb and his bride and here's what we hear erupting from heaven in chapter 19 verses 6 through 8 just shouts of joy alleluia For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. 
If we don't have a, 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 a man, so to speak, who is going to use us and throw us out with the trash. We have a Savior who throws himself into the way of demons to protect his bride. Who spills his own blood so that we can wash our garments white in it. Who covers us and washes us with the water of his word and welcomes us into deep fellowship and community and gives us life forevermore. That's the kind of bridegroom we have. So I don't know if you related to this brother we were looking at or not. His story and the way that demons are influencing him with the guilt and the shame and the loneliness and even the suicidal stuff rumbling in his heart. But I do know that Jesus is here to help. That's why he's come. He's come to destroy the works of the devil, to contradict it in your life. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you... Speak tenderly to your bride. That you don't use, you don't abuse, you restore, you give life. And I pray for those here that feel like Satan's been having a heyday with them lately. I ask you to come in, I ask you to redeem, I ask you to free, I ask you to save. So that we, like this crowd in Revelation 19, might just be singing here to you from joy.